The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, Senior Fellow. I'm joined this week as I am every other week by my conversation partner, John McWhorter, who teaches at Columbia University and writes for the New York Times. And uh, we have the pleasure this week of welcoming Liz Collin and Dr. J.C. Shea uh, to our show to talk with us about their uh, recently released documentary film on the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020, which they called The Fall of Minneapolis. So welcome, Liz and J.C., to the show. Thank Thank you. you very much for having us. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this uh, of this documentary. How did you come to be uh, in the business of chronicling uh, what happened in Minneapolis in uh, 2020 and its aftermath? Yeah, I can probably start and then uh, Jay jump in. Um, I was a longtime Minneapolis uh, anchor and reporter at the CBS station when all of this uh, unfolded. Um, I'm married to a now former Minneapolis uh, police officer, but he was serving as the union president at at the time. Um, I certainly had some some trouble with the media before all of this, but I'd never seen anything sort of up close, such as such as this before, with information uh, that that the press was was privy to, and and they re- refused to to pass along. There were so many things in, in this case uh, that really bothered me on a moral and and ethical level, um, and I was able to um, go ahead and and chronicle a lot of that, and and was connected with uh, Dr. Shea here. Um, to put out a book, uh, they're lying: the media, the left, and the death of George Floyd. And this is after I left mainstream media. Uh, over all of this, as sort of cancel culture came after myself and my family for being married to a, a police officer, you know, sort of how how dare you these days? Um, but then we wanted to go ahead and take this a step farther and put out put out this documentary, make it available for free, so as many people uh, would would see it as possible. JC, you want to add to that? Sure. Watch out be- for the. Uh- Feedback. Sure, it's it's interesting that we have a media professional, Liz, whose first inclination was to write a book. Then you have someone myself, a book editor or a rhetorical janitor, if I can dignify myself. First says, "Let's go ahead and make a documentary." So, believe it or not, we have this sort of crossing of ideas, and we said, "Okay, let's let's use the book first. Let's document everything." Um, more than 200 citations can be found of empirical evidence in her book. And then we said, okay, now that we understand some of the initial reactions, let's go ahead and show this to folks. Because showing is a lot more powerful, a lot more expedient, if you will, uh, to get people to understand truth and follow this very convoluted story that has many parts um, from the very first lie told by George Floyd all the way to the aftermath and the lies that still continue. 
Um, so it really is more than just the story of how George Floyd died. It's uh, a lot more complicated and longer than that. Hence the fall of Minneapolis. I want to ask one quick thing, Glenn, before we continue, because from the feedback and some other interactions I've had, we need to clear something up because this documentary comes after January of last year. You two, is the footage of Floyd and what happened to him, is it AI or not? Because that is going to be a constant call that you guys had that footage made. Because let's face it, at this point, an 11-year-old could, I was just thinking, literally, my 11-year-old daughter could construct that footage. I know you didn't, but can you now stay here for the record that that footage is real, especially since it's been seen before, but God knows what people will think. Just let's get that part out of the way. Sure, if you will, the, the sources that we've used, um, the actual digital files, <clears throat> I've downloaded them from various sources. So I have some examples that were from Fox News, for example. I have others that were from ABC, CBS, um, local channels in Minneapolis, a variety of them. All of them are predate that by years. So in other words, a lot of sources, I believe beginning earliest perhaps, in September of 2020. That's in the metadata of these files. There is no manipulation thereafter. And I would encourage anyone to look for the empirical evidence. Go back and find these body cam videos for yourself and look at several versions of them to dispel any of these myths or the idea of myth-making here. And just to pick up on what Jay was saying really quickly, that's part of the reason of of all of this. This is the very first time that Minneapolis police withhold body camera footage from the the public. So people would wonder, you know, you should question why why that is, why these weren't out uh, sooner. So, so Jay, just to answer your question, John, certainly not uh, AI. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah, I was just going to ask how much of the uh, body cam footage that we see is original to the public from your documentary and how much of it had already been circulating on the internet uh, that people could have access to? Because some of the people who commented on our post about your film said, well, there's nothing new here. We already had seen these body cam shots and all that. Yeah, and going with a, a little bit of a light touch, Glenn and John, perhaps we really understated that too much. One of the backstories here is, yeah, this is not new. We're not claiming this is new. It's actually a criticism that this has been available for so long. And nobody has taken the time or diligence to actually look at what amounts to, if you take all four officers, a little more than an hour or so of collective body cam video. And that is something we didn't want to go too heavy in and and criticize everyone. But maybe we went a little too understated. But that is definitely something we wanted to point out. We're not claiming this is new at all. The documentary film itself is new, but none of this is new. In fact, you can go to the, you know, to the court document section uh, on the website and see all of the motions, all of the motions to dismiss, all of the orders, everything that Cahill signed off on, all of the filings of Keith Ellison, which oddly suggest we're withholding this body cam video rather than presenting all of it in its entirety, which you have to question if this was such a violent murder as he contends, 
why didn't they put all of this footage into the trial? Okay, uh, I want to come back to Keith Ellison, the attorney general of many of Minnesota at the time of the trial of Derek Chauvin and also still the attorney general, because I've heard from him about our uh, commentary on your film. And uh, I'll share that in uh, due course. Sure. But I, I, I first just want to get, get down to cases. You, you say we were lied to. Who lied about what? And why? Well, uh, just... Liz. Yeah, just just to begin, this this is going to be a long answer, <laughs> and maybe uh, Jay Jay can jump jump in here. Um, the lies kind of begin with uh, omission. Uh, again, we talk about the the body camera footage. Uh, there's a reason I believe that that is withheld from the public. George Floyd himself uh, is is lying from the beginning, but you also um, you have George Floyd talking about how he can't breathe long before Derek Chauvin arrives on scene. Uh, you have the officers asking, you know, what are you on? What did you take? And, you know, he he continually denies taking anything. He's talking about how he recovered from COVID. Uh, recently in that body camera footage, he's he's pulled from a cramped car, but yet he says that he, you know, will not go into the back of this squad car because he's claustrophobic. Uh, you have George Floyd, uh, you know, being taken to the ground after he's, you know, re refusing to get into the back of the squad car, but also Thomas Lane calling for an ambulance uh, 36 seconds after that happens. So why are we, you know, not told about any of the, the real interaction, this nearly 18 minute uh, interaction? Instead, the public is only allowed to see this this viral uh, Facebook video. Then you have the, the chief of police and the mayor speaking to the next day how this this maneuver, whatever's happening at 38th in Chicago and Minneapolis is not a part of training. It's not how they train. Uh, but yet two pages of the police manual are missing the very next day uh, online <clears throat> that go into the maximal restraint technique known as MRT, which the officers also can be heard on that body camera footage uh, discussing uh, that, that very day. Um, there are more lies to continue. And Jay, if maybe you want to join in here. Sure, that's a good point, Liz. And this isn't about pointing figures. Again, this is just about empirical evidence. The lies in this case began with George Floyd saying, I just lost my mom. I just, you know, I got shot last time. No, nothing. When he's asked, am I on anything? There's a litany of lies. And the point of showing that in the arrest previous was not to taint his character, nothing of that sort, but it was in this context to point out this is a career criminal. As a former police officer, when people have a modality, they know what to say or they try to gain sympathy. On the street, that's known as running game. They'll bring up things. You know, my sister just got arrested or you name it, I just lost my uncle. Anything to throw off where this is likely headed or jail to gain sympathy or throw officers off. So you have George Floyd himself lying. You then have Chief Arredondo and Mayor Fry lying, as Liz said, about this technique. Interestingly, back to evidence, if we compare what Chief Arredondo told the FBI and the Minnesota BCA during a video, he mentions the word hobble, which is part of the MRT. And this was in 2020. So before his testimony in court, he's clearly well aware by his own words of the technique they were using. So there's that contentious lie. You also have Governor Walls almost immediately calling this the murder of George Floyd. 
And then I can't really trace this chronologically, but from there, even within days, the lies just keep going to all the way up on the stand till even now where there are fabrications and anything that looks like something that can substantiate all of the dismissiveness we've had to this point and saying, no, this is the truth when it clearly empirically is not. Okay, you guys. No, I want you to speak, Liz. Go ahead. I was just going to also get to the point of John asking why, because we've been asking that very question uh, for years, for years now. But I think as a as a journalist, as a reporter, you know, you follow the money, you follow the power and and somewhere along those, you know, uh, along that route, you'll you'll find the truth here. And it was a presidential election year. I don't think that can be um, under, understated um, with with President Trump and uh, then candidate Joe, Joe Biden at, at the time, uh, there was sort of this uh, chaos, obviously with with COVID uh, at the time as well. And uh, I don't think you can also um, o- overlook the, the media's role in all of this. Um, you had a very dangerous, divisive narrative that the media was was willing to push here, uh, including you know that this is the most racist police incident in, in U.S. history. Uh, but you have a black officer. Another lie, I think, a black officer who arrested George Floyd. Um, that that didn't really fit the narrative. Alex King talks about that in the film. He is that officer uh, who was just three days on the job when he arrested uh, George Floyd, and now he's he's serving a three and a half year uh, prison sentence. Okay, I have to ask you. How is George Floyd a career criminal? George Floyd, who was lying in in his interaction with the officers because he didn't want to go to jail that day. How's that relevant to the question at hand, which is that he met his end uh, at the hands of Minneapolis uh, police? uh, And that was what the issue was, not whether or not he was a good guy or whether or not he told the truth. Yeah, to that, Glenn, again, about that idea of running game and not showing his hands. And let's just back up to the very, very ictus of this interaction. When Officer Thomas Lane approaches the window that is closed and says to George Floyd, let me see your hands. At that moment, he could have complied. He could have put his hands up on his head, on the steering wheel. He could have done something. That would have been a completely different trajectory. And I'm saying this as a former police officer as well, a completely different trajectory in that interaction. But instead, he takes his hand, he leans toward the center console area inside the vehicle, you can see this through the glass, and reaches for what any officer will tell you is one of the most dangerous areas in a vehicle, and that is the center console area. That's where you will find contraband, illegal narcotics, illegal drugs, you will find firearms, you name it. Luckily, in this case, we know after the fact, that's just where George Floyd was putting some counterfeit bills, stucking them in between the seats. But that interaction right there could have gone completely different had he simply responded. And instead of doing that, he wants to go for sympathy. He knows this worked a little bit in the 2019 interaction he had. He was not arrested and put in jail that day. So why wouldn't you, if you're playing the cat and mouse game, why wouldn't you use that again to get yourself out of going to jail? Which, once he is out of the vehicle, he does say something to the effect of, man, I don't want to go back, or I don't want to go back there. Meaning, I think he has a pretty good idea of where this is heading. 
I don't want to say it's an admission of guilt. That's for someone else to determine. Sounds like it to my ears. But clearly, he was in control. George Floyd was in control of this trajectory as well. This is not just on the, the officers. He could have complied. He could have said, okay. He could have easily just been quiet. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say he was guilty of any crime. He could have just complied, and it would have been a completely different trajectory. I think there aren't many people who understand how vigorously and for how long he resisted any kind of you know, command or request that gradually the officers were realizing this was a person who was, frankly, really high and really out of control and needed help. I think a lot of people envision that he was stopped and maybe there was some sort of brief exchange and they pushed him down onto the ground. Now, this still gets into what exactly happened on the ground, but certainly when they do do the movie about this, they're going to have the Larry Fishburne-looking actor just pushed right down onto the ground about 30 seconds after he's, he's approached. And that's not remotely what, what happened here. Now, then again, the detractors out there are still going to say, okay, let's say that George Floyd was an utter mess and a worthless human being. Still, what happened to him down there on the, the street should not have happened, which leads, and Glenn, you're driving on this episode, but I'm just guessing that where you're about to go is Ellison and what he showed us this week. And I, I, I'm just itching to grapple with that. Sorry well, if I drove the wrong way. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. And let's do that. Uh, I mean, I did want to comment. The uh, police uh, commander on the stand literally lied about the existence of the MRT uh, and committed perjury. I mean, he would have committed perjury if he had said a false statement under oath. That's, that's mind-boggling. That, that's what you guys are alleging, no? It, yes, um, to be clear. Um, and not mince any words. We have that same person, the chief of police, Chief Madaria Arredondo, in an interview with an FBI special agent and a Minnesota BCA special agent, refer to the word hobble. They didn't introduce that into the conversation. It's a very peculiar word. Unless you're talking about how people walk, <laughs> um, it's a pretty strange verb. And in this case, it's a noun. It's not an everyday conversation. It is written in this particular policy, policy 5-316 of the use of force section of the Minnesota Police Department Policy and Procedure Manual. And it talks about the hobble. So clearly he was aware of this. Now back to a little bit about the lies of omission for a second to understand why I'm saying this constitutes perjury by lie of omission. You have to understand that there's a problem with that policy. It says, if you use a hobble, you must put the person who is being restrained into what's called the side recovery position. An absolute utter failure of this policy is there is no part B that says what to do if you do not use a hobble, but still administer the maximum restraint technique MRT. I think very early on, Someone realized we have a problem here. Clearly from the video, the officers are following that. It should seem very suspicious that the prosecution only uses one photo, exhibit 17, a still frame photo, instead of the body cam video. 
to imprint, like making propaganda, imprint and isolate Derek Chauvin as if he is the lone officer with his knee on the neck of a person on the ground, when in fact there are three officers, and arguably four, since Officer Tao is trying to help find a hobble in the back of the car, that are working together in concert, exactly as written in policy, performing a maneuver together that one officer alone cannot perform. It is a one plus or two or more officer maneuver. So when on the stand, he's presented with this still image from Exhibit 17, and I don't want to get into legal strategy here, that's not my expertise, but as a person who studies semiotics, how signs function, by using one function and not, sorry, one exhibit, one photo, and not the entire body cam video, we definitely have a lie or a construction or a manipulation happening that allows Chief Arredondo to say, well, prosecutors, if you're only asking me about this one incident, this one moment, this one instance in this photo in Exhibit 17, I don't know what that is. And that's where we have this lie of omission occurring. And you also have Inspector Katie Blackwell, who echoes that very thing on, on the stand yes. as well, uh, under oath. She has since been promoted to the assistant police chief position in, in Minneapolis, but, but also testifies that that's not a part of uh, police training. But you can clearly hear in the film, uh, you know, th these officers talk about how they've been, been trained in MRT, and this is uh, several decades old at this point. Uh, in, in their training manuals. In fact, I think we found um, MRT discussed as far back as 1993. And one last point to that. It, exactly. This wasn't new. Chief Arredondo made these remarks well before the trial. Thomas Lane, again, in another interview with FBI agents and BCA agents, explained we were going to use the MRE and tells them I might have said it wrong. And he did. And he corrects them in this interview months before Derek Chauvin's trial started. Okay, um, let's talk about Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison is the attorney general of the state of Minnesota and was so at the time of Derek Chauvin's trial. And um, I recently heard from him uh, after uh, John and I's uh, original discussion of your film was made public. And I, I want to share with you what he wrote with his permission and uh, get, your, uh, get your response to that. Uh, this is Attorney General Keith Ellison. Dr. Lowry, I respect your political positions, though I do not share the ones I am aware of. I like However, that. <laughs> <laughs> However, your recent posting with Mr. McWhorter regarding the murder of George Floyd contained a factual assertion that Derek Chauvin, together with Alexander King and Thomas Lane did not cause the death of George Floyd. This is false. While I don't have time to recount all the reasons why your assertion is wrong, I urge you to listen to the testimony of Dr. Tobin to see exactly why and how Chauvin, Kane, King, and Lane killed Floyd. I pray you take the time to learn exactly how George Floyd died. He was the victim of a homicide which means death by another, according to all medical examiners who examined him. I make no other critiques of your political points, not that I agree, but I respect your right to your views. 
I'm writing you today to try to focus your attention on the factual question of who and what killed uh, Floyd. The officers killed him as a matter of medical fact, Keith Ellison. And let me just mention that uh, Dr. Martin Tobin is a medical expert on respiratory mechanics who testified, I did listen to his testimony, that uh, Floyd died from a restriction of his access to air because of the positioning uh, that he was being held in with the handcuffs against the ground and with the MRT. That's uh, and, that's Keith Ellison. Yeah, and, you want to add something, John? Yeah, um, and it's a very, it's an hour and a half of testimony. It's from this man who is clearly an expert. I doubt there's much bias, and if you're going to talk about the cinematic version of it, he's Irish. He, he didn't grow up with a dog in this fight. He's just basically doing his job. And from what he says, it was that um, Floyd was pushed against the ground and therefore had no ability to use his left lung. It was as if the left lung had been taken out. And he's trying to use his right lung, but he can't because King has is pushing him down on his back. And also, I was Floyd is moving his shoulder in a way that apparently suggests that someone is trying to open up their chest cavity to get more air. And then after a while, he stops moving his shoulder. Now, no sign of asphyxiation. I said on my last... In, in our last conversation to Glenn that, well, why is there no sign of asphyxiation? But apparently, and I also have just, I'm not a pulmonologist, but Glenn, I don't know if I should have copied this. Allison and I had a little exchange yesterday and I said, well, wh where, why is there no sign of asphyxiation? And he said, there doesn't have to be. That's not always the way it works. A person can just not have been able to get enough air and they die anyway. Now, I genuinely want to know given that Ellison is as sure of his facts as you two are of yours, what is the response? So, for example, let's say that you guys show that report where it says there are no signs of asphyxiation. I found that very compelling. But then I also was thinking, I wonder if there always have to be. Can we really say, and I'm asking this just because I want the truth in this, an audience, folks, you know, if I turn out to be wrong about what I said last week, well, I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to face up to it because I'm looking for the truth. But I am going to resist a little because a lot of this still doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Can you really say that shortness of breath didn't kill that man, especially because given all the stuff that was in him and how upset he was, that probably put him to the halfway point anyway. Can we really say that those officers did not cause him to go from sick and out of breath to dead? This is a genuine question. Sure, if, if I may, let's get back to empirical evidence, first of all. And with respect to all the witness testimony, I, I will say, let's, let's just grant them everything they, they said is actually factually accurate, 100%. We still have a contention, nonetheless. We have Dr. Andrew M. Baker, who is the pathologist, the only pathologist, to actually examine George Floyd. So I would submit everything else thereafter is exactly that, conjecture. Unless you were actually materially involved in that autopsy, you're entitled to any opinion you'd like, however expert or however amateur it may be. Let's talk about that. Back to the autopsy report, and just for reference, that would be medical examiner number 20, yeah, 203700, 20-3700. It does not say the word homicide at all. At all. 
I would defy Ellison. Anyone else, please show me in that document where the word homicide is written. It is not. And then we have a very, very peculiar situation with this report. And the case title, and I know this well, reads something like cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement subdual, restraint and neck compression. It does not say asphyxiation. Now I know Ellison would like to say, well, it doesn't have to, because his attorneys actually argue this is just a style issue. The fact that Baker doesn't mention this is just a matter of style. That's a very interesting way of handling exculpatory evidence, saying, oh, it's just a style issue. That's interesting. But let's back up for a second. The first words in this report under the case title from the only pathologist who examined George Floyd says, cardiopulmonary arrest. And interestingly, the first instance of Mr. Floyd complaining about shortness of breath is even before he was taken out of the police car, even before Derek Chauvin had touched him at all. We have George Floyd saying, I can't choke, I can't breathe, long before any officer is touching him, putting him on the ground, or kneeling on his neck, as we're led to believe here. That to me is the initial report, the only one provided by someone who actually did an autopsy. And then interestingly, we learn in a completely different case that Dr. Baker was extremely concerned about the actual facts in his autopsy report not aligning with the popular narrative. And he expresses that to prosecutor Amy Sweezy the day of his conducting of this autopsy. That should be very, very telling. And his words from that, from that meeting are, um, this is the type of case that ends careers. Uh, so basically admitting that the pressure that, that he's under. I also wanted to point out as well <clears throat> that we tried for months uh, to get uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general of Minnesota, uh, to sit down with us for an interview. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that was for the book and uh, for, the, for the documentary as well. So I find it interesting uh, that he reaches out uh, to you guys to offer to offer this when we did give him the the opportunity um, and, he, and he declined. He also uh, admits to not seeing the film. Uh, this is in another interview. Um, as a reporter recently asked him about, about the fall of Minneapolis, uh, he says he has not seen the film, uh, but this is partisan propaganda and it's not based in fact. Uh, so I find those a, an interesting uh, choice of words. All right. I just want to be clear on what the rebuttal is of Dr. Uh, uh, Martin Tobin's uh, testimony here. What, what are you saying was wrong about what he said? Because as I listened to him, he had an account. No, he didn't do an autopsy, but he had, it was about the mechanics. It was, it was about the uh, consequence of the body position. And as John described, the breathing and so on. And he says, uh, uh, lack of access to oxygen. You're saying that's theoretical? that that didn't actually kill him. It could have perhaps theoretically have done so, but in the case at hand, it did not do so. Is, is, that, the, is that the claim? I just want to be clear. Sure. I, I would say this. 
it's interesting, might be relevant, but again, it doesn't account for everything that happened. How would he explain George Floyd saying, I can't, he says, I can't choke, I can't breathe. Nobody's on top of him. Nobody's on his neck. In fact, for a few seconds, nobody's even touching him. No police officer is touching him. He fails to account if we take George Floyd's words as a sign that he can't choke, that he can't breathe, that he's having some difficulty breathing. There's no involvement of police officers. That testimony fails to account for that. Something was already happening before the proverbial knee on the neck incident even began. There was respiratory distress, signs of it, happening before that. And in fact, interesting, which again, nobody else wants to talk about, like the fact that 36 seconds after George Floyd's on the ground, we have officers calling for an ambulance. There is no account for that. Nobody wants to talk about he said that he can't breathe or he can't choke before he was taken out of the vehicle. So you know, anything that's going to be expert, in my opinion, would need to do a much more vigorous, comprehensive job of starting at the initial part of the encounter and following it all the way through to the end to make anything that even reflects a comprehensive testimony. And then also one that precludes and excludes the idea of anything that looks like a lie of omission. When you don't talk about those facts in your testimony, I'm having difficulty understanding how you're not looking at the entirety of this encounter. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, all right. One thing that I get from both the documentary and Tobin is that Chauvin and King didn't know they were killing him if they were. They weren't, they weren't trying to cut off his oxygen. They may have, but they had no idea that's what was going on. But I have something else. And this is a little linguist, but I think a lot of people have been thinking it, and you guys have actually given me some clarity. What was that expression about what criminals do, running game, is it called? It's one of the street references. Yes, John. This is something we have to remember. Tragically, ever since Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe, I suspect that saying I can't breathe could be used as a kind of running game. And so Floyd is sitting there. He knows he's being filmed. Maybe when he said I can't breathe, it wasn't that the fentanyl was setting in, but he was using a line that he thought might scare the cops off a bit. Doesn't that sound really plausible, unfortunately? Yeah, and it does. we can't ever know. Glenn, what do you think? Well, I think hands up, don't shoot. I think uh, a hoodie with the Skittles and the iced tea. And I think I can't breathe became tropes. They, they, they became, you know, sort of They're verbal tics that people would re repair to in order to express something. And, uh, of course, it's plausible that that could have influenced what George Floyd said on, on that occasion. That's speculation on your part, but it's plausible speculation. I, I want to ask you guys something that. else. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, JC. No, I'm sorry. Um, a little bit of layover here. Not to get into epistemology here, but if everyone actually looked at all the body cam videos, and I'm not saying 
be crazy and watch them all, you know, split four screen and watch them all at the same time. Uh, I have, it's interesting. But even if you just look at Derek Chauvin's or, or Officer Tao's, Floyd makes those remarks before they are there. They don't know about the breathing difficulty. They don't know about the remark of, I can't choke, I can't breathe. Maybe they could have heard it, possibly, but they were not aware of that breathing difficulty as well. I think that's a very important point where everyone says, well, if he's having all this problem saying he can't breathe, I can't breathe. Exactly what you're saying. I've heard all sorts of things said to me. Um, you know, when you put bracelets on people and they know they're going to jail, you will hear all sorts of things from them. Um, some nonsensical, some rational, some facts, some truth, you name it, everything. But exactly the idea of, and, and thank you, Glenn, for bringing those up. There are, in fact, many tropes uh, that you will hear. In fact, there were tons of videos after this effect where you have victims saying, they're trying to George Floyd me. They're trying to George Floyd me. This just goes on. It belongs to the sort of milieu, if you will, of repeat criminal offenders. They do have their own vocabulary. They do have their own mannerisms and behaviorisms. People need to understand that. But as Jay was talking, I just wanted to make the point, too, that the jury isn't allowed to see this entire inter interaction, this 18, 20 minutes. In, in fact, it's just about 90 seconds that the jury in Derek Chauvin's trial uh, is allowed to, to see. And, and I know we're um, you know, talking, obviously, a lot about uh, you, you know, what, what transpired in, in just the, those few minutes. But, but that really is not the point of the documentary either, not the how George Floyd died. Uh, but but it's so much bigger than that. Here we are three years later dealing with all of the, the consequences as a result uh, of these lies. And are we OK with, you know, the, these so-called leaders and the media manipulating the, this message uh, really from the, the very beginning? And again, uh, here we are with with the fallout. You guys are pretty convinced that that J Derek Chauvin didn't get a fair trial. That Judge Cahill was biased against him. Uh, that the jury was intimidated. Um, these are questions I'm asking. I'm asking you to respond to my perception upon viewing your documentary that this is what you thought. Um, and I want you to expand on that. But what was wrong with the criminal justice process from Maxine Waters' uh, statements uh, to the, the fact that the jury was not sequestered and so on and so forth? If from your point of view, that uh, causes you to think, I speculate that you do think that Derek Chauvin didn't get a fair trial. You know, I think just discussing that, not what the jury was was allowed to see, but but what they were not, including this body camera footage, including the the MRT. Uh, but also you have uh, this trial take place 10 months after the worst uh, rioting in Minneapolis history. Uh, just just a few that that, uh, you know, happened just a few miles away from the Hennepin County Courthouse. You have a jury that's not sequestered. Uh, so they are braided, you know, in and out of this courthouse each day, and they're looking at barbed wire, National Guard soldiers uh, on duty. Uh, I think that certainly sent a sent a message to to the jury, um, and that's why uh, Derek Chauvin's attorney first appealed on a change of venue uh, situation, and the jurors themselves uh, admitted to the you know the pressure that that they were under. I think also another perspective, if I may, and sorry to go back to empirical evidence and, and frustrate Mr. Ellison's perspective on the matter. But if you look at the motions that were filed, make a little T diagram. Let's say you put 
P for prosecution, D on the other side. And you look at the motions and you look at the content of them. Those two as well tell a very interesting story. And in this one remark, Ellison says, well, it was really, a, the onus was on the defense to present this video. No, it wasn't. They all asked for it. They all filed motions for it. Yet there was a ruling made by a particular judge by what would be allowed and what would not. And if you do make that little T-square analysis and you start looking at it, you'll notice some pretty strange things. There are a dozen attorneys working for the prosecution, Pro Hoc Vice versus one for the defense in the courtroom. That's telling. When you look at the motions of what's allowed, what's denied, how it is, which one has a sidebar, which doesn't, which will only be allowed after a sidebar, and you just look at the motions, that tells a completely different narrative of how this trial uh, was, let's just be fair and say, managed, if you will. Okay. Uh, one of the criticisms uh, commenters uh, on my uh, platform have uh, offered of your film is when you depict the knee on the shoulder slash neck situation, you don't show the eight minutes and 36 seconds of it or whatever. You show only a snippet of that and give the impression to the uninformed viewer that uh, what happened there was less traumatic than what actually happened. So I wanted to ask you about the editorial decision of how you actually depicted the restraint, the MRT restraint. Yeah, for people who haven't seen it, the um, Tobin describes how sometimes it's on the neck, somewhat. Sometimes it's on the shoulder, not just on the shoulder. Just want to clarify. But even when it's on the shoulder, says Tobin, it could still be compressing the mechanics in such a way as to limit the ability to get oxygen through. So I took from Tobin that it didn't matter much whether it was literally the knee or the shoulder. It could have still had the same asphyxiating effect. So if I may do that, and I'm the one who quite adamantly made this, this decision as the director, well, supposedly we've learned absolutely everything we need to know about this case from a viral Facebook video. The whole world has seen it. So why are we going to waste everyone's time and putting another eight, nine, ten minutes of that in our documentary? It was a subtle distinction to be made. Here's everything you didn't see. And supposedly, you already know the rest. It was to make this very subtle, understated contrast. And it was also a way of encouraging others, go look at the body cam video for yourselves. Watch it in its entirety. That was a very deliberate strategic media move made on my, on, you know, mostly me, adamantly, saying, let's cut it off here. Let's be deliberate. Hopefully, this will prompt others to go see the videos for themselves. Watch all of it. Read all of it. Look at all the information that's been out there for years. That was really the mission of this documentary. Not to cover it all. If we were going to do that, this documentary would be about 120 days. So back to the fact of we deliberately, or I adamantly said, let's stop it with a little bit of overlap right where supposedly we have the Darnelia Frazier video that everyone, the whole world has seen. Yeah. Well, let's tell everything up to that point because everybody already knows all of this. And real quick, toward that 
that part of it as well. Again, what Liz said, that was not what was allowed to be presented to the jury. That's why what we did present, we believe, is significant. The jury didn't get to see it. Yeah. That was another contrast that, again, might be a little too understated. I want to talk about the cops. One of the things that most affected me by your film was the humanization of these individual public servants and what they've gone through. Uh, I saw cops weeping. Uh, I saw a police precinct burned to the ground with the police running with their uh, weapons and their evidence out the back door uh, from a mob. Uh, I, I, I saw, uh, I heard Derek Chauvin and uh, uh, Officer King uh, speaking to me from prison uh, where they are uh, sitting in a jail cell somewhere for a situation which you argue uh, they shouldn't have been uh, so punished. Um, and I, I'm, you know, everybody knows who uh, follows the news that Chauvin was stabbed within an inch of his life in an Arizona federal prison uh, within a matter of days after your film uh, dropped. Uh, I want to ask, how is he doing? And I want to give you an opportunity to speak to this question about the dehumanization of the police that has been a part of the public reaction to these kinds of incidents. Liz, I'll, I'll let you speak longer about that. But one thing I did want to point out, Glenn and John, I actually received an email from Derek that day. So he and I have since become friends. I have asked him questions that folks like Ellison and others have never asked him. Did you intend to kill George Floyd? Like, your mens rea, what were you thinking of killing him? And I also posed the same questions to Alex. And Derek, in his own way, said, I'm not that creative. If I was going to commit a murder, it would be much more elaborate. I'm not that kind of creative guy and never had any intention of it. One other thing to that, if you mess with the contrast of that video, um, the viral Facebook video, and even the body cam footage, you just move the contrast a little bit over so that um, the blues and the blacks are a little bit more separated. You will clearly see something about where the knee is and where it isn't. and also. Back to Exhibit 17, one singular photo tells one story. And it's interesting that they didn't bring in the whole entirety body cam to show when it is, when it isn't, this and that. Um, completely different stories being told here. You know, a lot of yes. back to the humanization. I'll let Liz speak to that. Very, very quickly. Liz, this is short. A lot of people are going to say, well, of course he didn't mean to kill him. And so, yes, nobody, nobody is going to try to kill somebody in the street, really, for any reason, usually, and not not even, despite what many people think of an officer, especially one who had no reason to fear for his life. But my impression is that Chauvin didn't know how much he was hurting Floyd, that he, he, he wasn't trying to, to disable him to the point of being afraid for his life, that he didn't know that he was doing something brutal. That's my in, impression, but I'm just saying. Anyway, Liz, go ahead also going to, to say it's well documented and we've had conversations with Derek as well he'd used the MRT for years uh, without any <laughs> issues uh, at all and these other officers testified to that as, as well so this was something they they'd used uh, without you know anybody 
passing away uh, as a result. But, but back to the, the police officer question, that was really uh, a reason we wanted to do this as well. It seemed nobody cared about the, the stories of uh, the, these people basically running for their lives as they're forced to surrender their workplace uh, to the mob in, in Minneapolis. Um, but I think every single uh, police officer we brought in, uh, all of them had decades of, of experience. Um, I think they all broke down at, at one point doing doing these interviews, which really shows, uh, you know, still the emotional toll this has taken on all of them. Minneapolis, in my opinion, really lost the best of the best. You had a police department go from nearly 900 uh, officers at the beginning of May of 2020 uh, to down to just just about 500 uh, at this point. Uh, so again, you know, Minneapolis left to all the residents there left to deal with the, these consequences uh, to this day. But I think that that was, uh, you know, a real reason for us wanting to do this and speaking to these officers, obviously in, in prison as well, and their families, what what they went through uh, didn't really seem like the media uh, cared cared too much to, to hear from them. And we actually have an officer who actually is still currently on the Minneapolis Police Department talking about how he feels that, you know, he wanted to stay on because he could not let evil win. Yeah. And it, I if I may, that. it takes tremendous sure. courage for them to speak out about that. Um, we're talking about people in profession um, where breaking down, showing emotion, being vulnerable is not part of that profession at all. So for them to speak as openly as they have, which speaks a lot to Liz's professionalism, when we have most of them crying at some point or breaking down or becoming emotional, I think you're getting as close to the truth and as close to their emotion as you can get. I don't, I'm not trying to privilege myself as a director. My, my job was more to get out of their way give them a place, an environment to feel comfortable to speak with Liz about this. So I had nothing to do with that in that regard. In fact, most people didn't even know I was in the room. So you're actually getting poignant questions from Liz and probably the most raw, emotionally raw responses from these officers themselves who were there. And more importantly, until this point, have been censored. You call the film The Fall of Minneapolis, and I'm, I'm moved to wonder, uh, will Minneapolis ever get up again? What, what do you make of the aftermath for your city of this event? I mean, you say the police force is way down. I assume that crime is up, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. And I'm wondering whether or not the neighborhood in which this event happened and where there was subsequent civil unrest uh, is prospering or continues to flounder? I'm wondering about the political ramifications uh, of uh, what has happened. Um, are you lone voices in the wilderness or are there city council or other uh, spokespersons who are uh, raising the kinds of questions that you're raising and, and so on? I'm just wondering as we close, if you share a little bit about what the, the aftermath for the city uh, of these events has been. I wish that uh, we could close on on a, a happy happy ending. No one likes likes that better than a, a storyteller. Uh, but but sadly, I don't see things improving. You have crimes in Minneapolis that that frankly never happened before, uh, happening in in numbers that uh, are really eye popping. Carjackings were not even reported uh, b before all of this. There are hundreds that that happen every year. We're on track now to record. Of four years of the highest homicides uh, ever in in Minneapolis, 
Um, and, you know, I could go on and on. I think they say that 21 vehicles are stolen in Minneapolis each and every day. Uh, again, it was a very idyllic Midwestern city. People always felt felt safe. You have businesses that, that have fled the, the city of Minneapolis. And that is sort of my uh, question to, to Attorney General Keith Ellison as well. You know, give us one thing that we can point to that we're better off now um, as, as a result. And, and nobody seems to be able to, to answer that, that question. So you do have uh, many people showing support to the police officers who are left. Uh, but, but sadly, you do have a city council uh, that continues to demonize the police. They've gone uh, even more to, to, to the left and sort of doubled down on, on a lot of this uh, in Minneapolis. And if I can add to that as a police officer, if you really care about what you're doing as a public servant, you work so that let's just say the, the elderly couple who still have the bars on the window, your job's not done until they feel safe enough to spend one of their few checks, probably on limited income, to pay someone, a handyman or whoever, to take those bars off. That's when you know you've won, you've done a good job. They feel safe again. But when you surrender a police precinct, the message that sends to those citizens the vulnerability that that gives them, it takes away their hope, takes away their sense of being protected. When you put that vulnerability on them, this is not something that's going to be fixed in my lifetime. And I'm not trying to be you know, uh, dramatic about that. It's going to take a lot of cycles of mayors and people wanting to do the right thing to recover from that, as Liz pointed out. And when you have crimes that were never tracked before, that suddenly take off and it, quite frankly explode, statistically speaking, that is a sign that pretends things aren't going in the right direction anytime soon. Mayor Fry, I uh, understand, said, we surrendered to precinct because these are my words, but this is the sentiment. It would have been a bloodbath if we had fought to defend it against that mob. And that was not going to happen on my watch. What's your answer to that? You know, I think that speaking to these officers, they're very clear that it didn't even have to get to that point. This had been going on for several days by the, the time this sort of standoff happens at the, at the third precinct. This was unlike any riot response, uh, they say, that they'd ever been through b before. They, for days, were told, you know, you can't wear your, your riot gear. Uh, you can't use, um, you know, any, any sort of, you know, force. Before, they would round up people uh, during riots and they would arrest them. That was not, that was not happening uh, in, this, in this case. So it simply did not have to go that far according to these officers uh, that we spoke to. I was going to also go back to the, your question about that area, 38th and Chicago. It's interesting that several businesses that are, that are located there at 38th and Chicago now three years later have filed a lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis for a lack of police protection. Uh, so kind of in the category of you almost can't even make this, uh, this up anymore at, at this point. They're upset uh, with their lack of, of police protection and the, and the crime that, that continues at that, in that area, 38th and, and Chicago. $27 million to George Floyd's family as a settlement from the city. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Derek Chauvin had employed the MRT in previous arrest scenarios. Am I mistaken or did I not read that uh, they've gone back to file suits on behalf of people who were restrained with the MRT by the notorious Derek Chauvin? And those people have gotten multi-million dollar settlements from the city. 
You, you are not mistaken, Glenn, that it, that has actually happened. And, and it's amazing that no reporter seems to pose the question as to, uh, well, in this case, uh, here, here's this person is uh, alive as a result uh, and talking in these press conferences, but yet they're willing to write, I think it was eight or nine, an eight or nine million dollar check uh, from the city of Minneapolis uh, to the, the person who did bring a, a lawsuit, the, the young man. So um, but I think this is also, you know, sort of where, where we are at this point, that it seems nobody is willing to tell the, the truth about this. Um, so here we are. And, and if I may toward that, I'm not going to speak to the squandering of taxpayer dollars or the allocation thereof or the so-called social, social justice aspect of it. But there's a reason why the MRT as a technique used by law enforcement agencies all over the United States since decades ago, if there was a fundamental problem, if people were dying as a result of this over and over and over again, it would not be in the policy of so many police departments for so long. And another aspect to consider toward that as well, most of the complications, if you will, and oddly enough, that's exactly the third word in Dr. Baker's autopsy report, complicating, complicating law enforcement, subdual and restraint. We have all of these different types of drugs, and I'm sorry when you take methamphetamine combined with fentanyl at the same time, even if you are the healthiest human being, you're going to struggle with basic functions at that point and hence the high effect. But when you take that type of maneuver and you're applying it to someone who is being combative, resistant, kicking officers as George Floyd did, you have a lot more going on. This is a much more dynamic situation beyond the application of any technique by any amount of officers. You have to look at a lot more things going on and I know folks like Ellison and other attorneys and prosecutors don't want to do that because that brings reasonable doubt into the mix. But there's, there needs to be a lot more said of it's not just the technique. It's been around for decades. Law enforcement agencies across the country use it. Yet you have one that wants to pander and basically placate with money those who contend after the fact that some harm was done that's a very interesting narrative well that needs some some questioning i believe there seems to be a logical case here that chauvin didn't know that that was going to be the result because it hadn't been so many times before he didn't do it to try to kill him or nearly kill him or vastly disable him he he didn't know and floyd was so far gone in so many ways that that happened I don't think we can say that we should have, Chauvin and King should have known. They didn't know exactly what was going on with him. So it's not that they should have known not to push him down because he was already a physically broken person. Not physically broken, but that his, his lungs and his heart were not going to work properly. They couldn't have known that. No, the, the number of times I've had people pass out while I've arrested them, the number of times I've, I was also a volunteer firefighter, you know, so responding, I've had people pass out if I reacted immediately as if they were dead, or if I took someone who I was just fighting with, or other officers were fighting with, and we just said, you know what, you know, let's do this, let's do that, all these other things, you're not doing what's written in policy. That policy is very, very specific. It says, 
if you're applying MRT, officers should monitor until EMS arrives. These are a bunch of Boy Scout police officers precisely following that policy. And also when you have three or more people on one person, it's just going to feel like someone's still moving. It's not as going to feel as if they're stiff or they're still. You, you can't have that perception. And if you've done that a lot, if you've had to subdue someone with another officer, you'll notice the slightest move that they make makes it seem as if that person's still moving. And that may not be the case. We know this well after the fact. We have this luxury of hindsight. But in that moment, with the distractions, with everything else going on, for them to come to the idea of maybe he no longer has the pulse and maybe he's dead or dying or can't breathe, et cetera, is in some ways kind of a long shot when you just got kicked, you just struggled with someone, and all you're trying to do is get in the back of the police car. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying there's a lot more to understand in that moment from the perspective of that moment, irrespective of what we know now. And to your point, John, exactly, it would be really hard to come to that conclusion um, and not be paranoid or wonder about all these other things. Should they monitor? Yes. How they should, when they thought that the ambulance was coming in minutes, that's why they said, let's not hobble. EMS is already on the way. They were expecting a response in seconds, a minute, two at the latest, certainly not the nine minutes or the eight minutes or whatever that it actually took. So again, if we see it from that moment following them, it's a much different story and a much different perspective. Okay, guys, thanks a lot for coming on The Glenn Show. Um, I just want to say, this is so controversial, it's so fraught. There's so much emotion behind it, uh, and people are dug in. Uh, but I've learned a lot from listening to you and from viewing your film, and I just think it's important that the perspective you represent get a, as broad a hearing as possible. I'm glad to be able to contribute to that. I'm sure John agrees with me. So Liz uh, uh, Collin and J.C. Shape, but John? I was just going to say that I hope that the audience can understand that this is not an open and shut, cut and dried, all I know is, oh, come on kind of issue. At least that. It's not as clear as everybody likes to pretend. I hope that we have been able to give these two citizens the opportunity to show that. This is not one of these. It just isn't, even though it's George Floyd. Okay, Thank you guys. very much for having us on. We appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Yes, take care.